Second Chronicles chapter 7. We didn't get out of chapter 7 together last time. We went down as far as verse 4. And what I want to do this evening is just finish from verse 4 down through the remainder of the chapter together, and then we'll uh, turn back to worship and partake of communion together. just felt like that what was left here in chapter 7 was just really an appropriate uh, occasion to meditate on these things and then partake of communion together in light of what the texts kind of address to us. As you remember, we're looking at the dedication ceremony of the temple. We've been seeing in the last few chapters the construction of the temple, and then just most recently in our last study, really kind of the dedication ceremony of the temple itself, as Solomon stood before the people and addressed them, spoke about God's faithfulness, rehearsed those things, and then he just began to pray before the people. Chapter 6, the majority of it is just a lengthy prayer. As Solomon, the king of Israel, just intercedes on behalf of the people and speaks to God directly on behalf of the nation. And at the end of that prayer, we saw as we came into chapter 7, the first few verses last time, God put his amen upon that prayer. It seems even before Solomon could, because the beginning of chapter 7 told us that when Solomon had finished praying, that fire came down from heaven and consumed, it says, The burnt offering and the sacrifices there and the glory of the Lord filled the temple again. Remember that the glory of the Lord filled the temple in such a way the presence of God so strong when they brought the ark uh, into the temple itself and when all of the people were unified in one heart and one voice worshiping the Lord. uh, God was pleased with that and his presence and his glory filled the temple in such a way that the priests couldn't even minister and the people could only just bow down and worship and honor the Lord because of the sense of God's presence being so strong. And now again for a second time, which reminds us that when God moves, he doesn't just do it one time or in one generation. God's always looking uh, to move by the power of his spirit and we should seek the Lord for fresh occasions when he would move fresh occasions of revival and spiritual renewal and again the glory of the Lord fills the temple of God the priests couldn't enter in it tells us for it says the Lord's glory filled the house of the Lord and verse 3 and 4 where we left off last time said when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory filled the temple they just bowed their faces to the ground And it says, worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, he is good, his mercy endures forever. So we have this scene here where the people are in the midst of worship as they're celebrating the dedication of the temple. Verse 4 then goes on to tell us, and then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon, verse 5, offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls. And 120,000 sheep, so the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. So verses 4 and 5 describe how over a period of time, and we'll see as we get a little bit further in the chapter, that this whole temple dedication ceremony in conjunction with celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles lasted about 14 to 15 days in total. But nonetheless, whether this happened over a two-week span or in a a shorter period of time, it tells us here in verses 4 and 5 how the people were offering sacrifices. And again, remember, from an Old Testament perspective, that was their predominant form uh, of an expression of worship. 
whether it was a sacrifice for the sin offering to make atonement for their sins when they failed in some way and they wanted their conscience to be cleansed and they knew they had sinned against God, whether it was the burnt offering, a way of consecrating themselves to the Lord, or the peace offering, which was a way of having communion and fellowship with God. These offering of sacrifices was, a, was a, one of the basic and predominant ways of worship And you want to talk about a great expression of worship if you didn't take notice in verse 5 where King Solomon, it says, offered a sacrifice. This is his expression of worship. 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Now, why so much? Well, first of all, for one reason, apparently that's what it took for Solomon to adequately express his worship towards the Lord. Uh, He wanted so greatly to be able to honor the Lord and express his worship towards the Lord that apparently he had the ability within his reserves and his flocks and herds there in Israel to offer a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and then 120,000 sheep. Now, what would that take just not only in the Uh, The cost and the expense of that, again, in an agrarian society where they, you know, farmed the the land and that was their predominant form of one food of of, uh, one way of providing for their needs, as well as having flocks and herds, uh, animals were very costly in that day. So it would be a great sacrifice to even give one animal unto the Lord. So the extensiveness of the cost here, the effort and the time put forth, how long does it take to offer 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep? How long would it take you if you just sat there and and if you get bored in the Bible study and counted to 22,000? just counting or to 120,000 and they were offering that many sacrifices upon the altar there as an act of worship to the Lord but again the immensity of that sacrifice and the bloodshed if you really just ponder it for a moment if you're an animal rights activist and love animals it's going to really be difficult for you to swallow but I mean that's staggering the amount of bloodshed that took place in that sacrifice is absolutely staggering and yet God is receiving it. At the the, the dedication of the temple and this act of worship unto the Lord, which God's going to call the temple the house of sacrifice, God receives all of this sacrifice and all of this shedding of blood of innocent substitutes in an offering because the immensity of that sacrifice and the bloodshed, though staggering, God received it because it reflected the incredible sacrifice, the immensity of the sacrifice of the ultimate Lamb of God that would be slain for the sin of the world. And the same way it took Solomon that type of a magnitude of, of sacrifice to express his devotion, do you and I have any real idea the immensity of the sacrifice that it required for our sins to be forgiven? The shedding of the blood of Christ, the the magnitude of that sacrifice. And in some ways, as God looked upon that, no doubt he was reflecting upon the incredible sacrifice that would come where the death of Jesus and the shedding of his blood would make atonement, not just temporarily or cover over sin because the blood and bulls of goats couldn't take away sin, but Jesus, the lamb of God, the final sacrifice would take away the sin of the world, would purge and remove the sin of all of humanity, not just the nation of Israel, But my sin, your sin, the sin of every human being who's ever lived from the entire history of mankind until its very end. 
the magnitude of that no doubt reflected in some way. And so this great sacrifice is taking place. And then verse 6 says, And the priests attended to their services, that is that which God had given to them to do, and the Levites, and remember the Levites were those who were the designated tribe who would minister unto the Lord. The priests came from the tribe of Levi, but they specifically, the priests did, uh, were those who functioned under Aaron's line to handle the different things within the temple. The Levites were the ministers who handled generally all the other aspects of ministry and worship and teaching the word of God and musical things as we see here. So the Levites, notice it says also, they attended to their service with instruments of music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, for his mercy endures forever. Whenever David offered praise by their ministry and the priests also sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood in the midst of this worship and singing and using of musical instruments to offer praise to the Lord, saying, for his mercy endures forever. And isn't it so interesting that that always seems to be one of the predominant things that the people are always reflecting upon? His mercy endures forever. Aren't you glad that God's mercy endures in your life forever? Again, mercy is... is when God withholds giving to us what we justly deserve. That's what mercy is. It's not getting what you do deserve. And we all need a lot of mercy, a lot of mercy for things we've done in our past, maybe things we're still struggling with in our present, and even mistakes that we're not even aware of, or we're going to bomb out and fail and falter maybe a month from now, a week from now, or five years from now if the Lord tarries or we don't pass away. And the Lord's mercy, it endures. It continues to endure. He's merciful towards us forever. It continues to carry us because, again, of the great sacrifice of what Jesus has done for us. We're recipients of even greater mercy than they were in that day. I like how verse 6, though, gives us this inference of how they were using these musical instruments in their worship and singing. It says they were called instruments of music of the Lord, which were made to praise the Lord. In other words, those particular instruments, it seems made by David or under David's instruction at least, those particular instruments were made to praise the Lord. The idea is exclusively. Whether it was a stringed instrument or trumpets or horns or cymbals, whatever they were, they were made to praise the Lord. And I look at that and I think, what a great reminder that the highest use of an instrument, the highest use of music is to honor God. Now, we would think differently in today's generation, you know, the highest use of an instrument, a guitar, drums, whatever, or the highest use of somebody's vocal instrument uh, to be able to sing and to sound wonderful. Typically, in our culture, we think the highest use of that is to get famous, you know, win uh, whatever, America's Got Talent or whatever idol show and, and go on and make lots of money. But from God's perspective, the highest use of an instrument, the highest use of singing, the highest use of, of music and worship is actually to honor the Lord. David made instruments and he said, these instruments, they're not just to play songs. They're instruments to be used to honor God with music, to be singing to God and giving God glory and to praise the Lord for what he's worthy of receiving. Verse seven says, furthermore, Solomon then consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. So this would be the courtyard area out beyond where the, the 
court of the priests was. So this would either be where like the court of the men and the women were. There were multiple courts as you went further out away from the temple structure. And there, it says he consecrated that area. The reason is for there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of peace offerings because the bronze altar which Solomon had made, look at this, it says, was not able, the idea it wasn't capable to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. So the picture there is, again, as we read back in verse 5, the extent and the amount of all these sacrifices was was so immense that the bronze altar remember we talked about that as we looked at the construction of the temple that bronze altar was big i mean it was a big altar that they would offer sacrifices on but yet despite that it says there was such an extent of worship that it actually exceeded the capacity of the bronze altar to be able to handle all of the worship and all of the sacrifices that were being brought in that day that the altar wasn't able to accommodate all the activity and it seems potentially they had to use some other ways to keep bringing forth and making these offerings unto God because it overwhelmed the bronze altar. I look at the picture here and I think what a beautiful example in some ways kind of one of those kind of things we talk about a great problem. You know, sometimes we talk about having a good problem, like a good problem is, is when you're too busy at work and you're complaining about your job. Look, that's a good problem because you could have no job, right? There are other people who have a different problem. There's not enough work and they got no job. So we talk about good problems and bad problems. I think even in, in the church and the body of Christ and among the spiritual life, sometimes there, there are good problems. This is a good problem because the problem is, There is so much worship coming towards God and people want to worship so much they can't even accommodate all the worship. That's the picture here. What a great problem. People want to worship too much. Would to God we have that problem today among the people of God again. The people want to worship too much. Look, we've had the church open seven days a week. It's too much. (laughs) We can't accommodate. Everybody wants to worship too much. Typically, it's the other problem we're often dealing with is people aren't interested in worshiping at all. You know, it's just it's like a burden to drag themselves to church once a week or twice a week. And, oh, and here they, they just want to worship so much. They say, well, we can't even accommodate all the worship here. What a beautiful thing to see that the people's hearts, again, just an indication there's a real moving of God's spirit. Again, this is the kind of stuff that happens when the fire of God falls from heaven. And the glory of the Lord fills the house of the Lord and and people's hearts are stirred and their hearts are lit ablaze for God. Again, as the result of what happened, God stokes a fire among the people and there's this great amount of worship taking place. It's just kind of overwhelming the altar and its capacity. Verse 8 says, And at that time Solomon kept the feast seven days. Again, remember that was the Feast of Tabernacles as we talked about. And all Israel with him A very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath, that would be up north, a geographic reference, to the brook of Egypt, which would be all the way down to the south. So it's describing they came from the north to the south, a great assembly. And on the eighth day, verse 9 says, they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast for seven days. 
So somewhere between 14 to 15 days, they observe the Feast of Tabernacles, which is being referred to here, we know, for seven days. And in conjunction with that, it also says they observe the dedication of the altar and the temple and all the worship system for another seven days. Verse 9 talks about an eighth day holding a sacred assembly. That could be an indication of potentially 15 days in total. But what a neat thing to see here, verses 8 and 9. You basically have 14 to 15 days straight of worshiping and just celebrating God. People just detaching from their everyday lives, you know, walking away from the farm, not worrying, and just coming together and congregating and taking a a detachment from everyday experiences and spending two solid weeks. You want to talk about like an extended, you know, worship conference or men's retreat or women's retreat. This is for two solid weeks that people come together with no other intention other than just to worship and to celebrate God and to focus particularly as we're going to see on the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord, because that's particularly what the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrated the faithfulness of God, how God preserved them through the wilderness And though even though they had made mistakes and erred, that God didn't abandon them, that he kept being faithful and he preserved them through even the dealing with their own hardships and difficulties that they brought upon themselves, that God didn't just abandon them and say, hey, well, you, you know, you kind of made your mess. So suffer through it now that God preserved them still through it. And he kept being good to them and kind to them and merciful, even though they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And as they went through that whole process, God was still faithful to them. And God still took care of them. And the Feast of Tabernacles celebrated that reality. So here they are. Just what an incredible thing. How awesome would it be to just be able to have two weeks to just come come together and worship the Lord? You know, many of us would like to have two weeks of just vacation. They, They came together just for two weeks just to worship God and to just celebrate the goodness of God. And they're just gathering together and praising the Lord and remembering his faithfulness for this extensive capacity. And verse 10 then says, and on the 23rd day of the seventh month, and that's how we know it's the Feast of Tabernacles, it says, he, that's King Solomon, he sent the people away to their tents. So things come to a conclusion. He sends them away and look how they return home. It says, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. So notice the result of that time, the two-week span or whatever it was of seeking the Lord and worshiping the Lord. It tells us that the people went home after seeking the Lord, having experienced joy and gladness. It says he sent them away and they went home joyful and glad of heart. That was the byproduct of worshiping God. The end result of an experience of worship and focus on the Lord ended up being people experiencing joy and gladness in their soul. And I tell you something, you want to talk about a great antidote for depression? The people came, they worshiped God. It didn't change whatever their circumstances were back on the farm. Whatever challenges they were dealing with personally in their home lives or their personal affairs, it didn't all... They came together, they worshiped God, they focused, particularly, it tells us in the verse, on the fact that the Lord had been good and for the good the Lord had done. And the end result of worship was, it says, they had joyful and glad heart conditions. What a wonderful thing. 
I, I mean, I am a firm, firm believer that there would be less depression, less discouragement, less despondency, less partaking of pills to cope if more of God's people would spend time worshiping the Lord and just focusing on the goodness of God and just having an experience with God. The Bible tells us times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And there is something about just getting alone with God, whether it's in your own personal time, just you know, flipping on some worship music and just singing unto the Lord, whether in your car or in your house or just spending some time alone with the Lord in worship. And there's something very powerful where the Spirit of God does wonderful things when we come together like this as the congregation of the Lord's people and we just begin to worship the Lord and shift our gaze from what was going on outside the doors before we came into the house of the Lord and we just start thinking about the Lord and meditating upon the Lord and and how many times does the Lord lift our spirit and we're edified and we're encouraged and we find ourselves with a sense of, of gladness or joy because we've rejoiced in the Lord and maybe we can't rejoice in anything else but you can always rejoice in the Lord because the Lord's always good and what a wonderful thing What a wonderful antidote, free and powerful and helpful, that if we want joy in our lives and we want more gladness in our spirit, that comes from spending time in worship. What a wonderful antidote, a helpful thing, and that they focused on, it says, the good that the Lord had done for them. That that is something that we should always, from time to time, just ponder and reflect upon, the good that the Lord had done for them. I encourage you this evening, even as we go back into a time of worship here shortly, that as you're worshiping the Lord through song and through music, that you would focus on the good that the Lord has done for you. They were focusing on the Lord, what the Lord had done good for David and for Solomon. It says for all the people, think of what good things the Lord has done for you. The many ways he's been good to you. The many things that he's done in your life that were really good, maybe even when you were doing really bad. And yet he's been good to you still. He's been kind to you still. He's been gracious. The ways that God has blessed your life, the things that you can be thankful for, rather than all the things that you're upset or or angry, the things that, that God has done a lot of good things for you. A lot of good things. And to be able to reflect upon that and to celebrate that, there's something in that that's a very powerful thing that says they were joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for them. Verse 11, Thus Solomon finished all the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that came, excuse me, Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. So we've tracked along here with Solomon in this progression. We read in the earlier chapters, Solomon determined to build the house of God. And then we read Solomon began to build the house of God. And now we read Solomon finished building the Lord's house. He determined to do it. He began the process and he carried it out to completion and he finished it. So important that we as well, like Solomon, take into consideration the importance of all three of those things as we've talked about along the way. Solomon stayed on task and I'm sure it wasn't easy. It was a seven year process. There were glitches and challenges and complications and probably permit issues. Of course, there probably wasn't. Maybe I'm a little bitter about something right now. (laughs) There were issues, but he stood the course and he finished the project all the way to the end. 
and he had staying power in the midst of what he was doing. And look, this is, this is crucial in the spiritual life. Very, very crucial in the spiritual life because sometimes as believers, we determine to do things, and, and, but then we just we never begin. We never take a step of faith. I know I need to start doing this or I know I need to take a step in this direction. We determine things and we have, but we never take a step. We never activate and put into practice things. Other times we determine to do something and then maybe we even begin to do something, but then we never finish it. We never carried out the completion. We get distracted or we get sidetracked or we get discouraged. And, And Solomon here demonstrates as a beautiful example, I call it staying power. It's staying power, staying on task, finishing what God gives us to do, carrying things through in a way to honor and glorify the Lord, not, not walking off when it gets hard. We're not walking off just because you know we get weary or it's a little bit more, but staying on task, that's staying power. Solomon finished, and it says he successfully accomplished all that came into his heart at this time. And verse 12 says, And then the Lord appeared... To Solomon by night. So he has another experience with God, whether a night vision or a dream, we're not told, other than it happened at night. And the Lord came and appeared, revealed himself to Solomon and spoke to him. And he said to him, verse 12, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place as chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. I love the first thing God says to Solomon there in verse 12. I have heard, I have underlined, emphasized your prayer. A lot of times we wouldn't dispute God hears prayer. Well, I know God hears prayer. That's why we pray, because God hears prayer. God listens to prayer. But, But how wonderful when there's some experience that you have between you and the Lord and God, in a sense, articulates to you in some way, I've heard your prayer. I've heard your prayer. Yes, I'm the God of the universe, and yes, I'm hearing all these prayers of multitudes of people, but in a very personal way, I've paid attention to what you're crying out to me about. I've heard your prayer. You may not feel like I've heard your prayer. It may not seem like I've heard your prayer, but God says, I've heard your prayer. I've heard your prayer, your prayer. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation around the throne of God that they have the prayers of the saints and it says they're in golden bowls like incense. And to me, that's just a reminder of the value that God puts upon our prayers, that they're, that they're kept in heaven in, in golden bowls. That's how valuable our prayers are. Everything you've prayed, God has heard. Other people may not be listening to your voice or seem like they care or are concerned or may not even be aware of what your deepest, innermost prayer may be. But God knows your prayer and he's heard your prayer. And know that he's listening, that he's attentive. He says, Solomon, I've heard your prayer, that prayer that Solomon had just prayed. I've heard it, he says. And he says, as well, Solomon, I have chosen this place there on the Temple Mount for myself as a house of Sacrifice Again, take notice, how does God refer to the temple? He refers to the temple as a house of sacrifice. Of all the things God could have called it. Again, it wasn't a place where they could limit the presence of God. God's presence wasn't contained there within the temple. Solomon understood that. He said, God, even the heaven of heavens couldn't contain your presence. But it was a house of worship and a house of sacrifice where they would come and they would make sacrifice unto the Lord. And I think that's very fitting. It was a house of sacrifice because it was to be a place 
where sacrifices were made and blood was shed so the people could properly approach God and worship. Without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins. And without the shedding of blood of an innocent substitute, they could not approach God. They could not have access or fellowship to God. It was through the shedding of blood and sacrifice that they could properly approach God. And of course, all of this becomes a picture of the ultimate temple, the body of Christ, Jesus himself, who was torn and beaten, how Jesus himself becomes the ultimate sacrifice so that we can approach him ourselves. It's only because of what Jesus did and the sacrifice that Christ made that you and I can directly now approach God and have fellowship with the Lord because, again, John says that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now we can approach God. We can come directly to God and have access by grace and through faith, through the finished sacrifice of Jesus. And when we come together, we need to reflect upon, look, we don't come together just because, you know, for some reason we're trying to get close. We come together in Jesus' name understanding when we come together again, it is only because of the sacrifice of Christ that we can even do this, that we can have fellowship with God and approach God and pray in the name of Jesus and be heard by him, even as Solomon and others' prayers were heard on the basis of sacrifice, of blood atonement. So God, in light of these things, now gives this sort of you know, exhortation and promise to the people. He says, verse 13, And when I shut up heaven... And there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So notice God establishes here, verse 13, uh, kind of a reminder in regards to what Leviticus 26 talks about in other places. We've described this before, where God gave there, in a sense, blessings and curses. And remember, God said, look, if you obey me and you follow my word and you keep my statutes and the, the, the things that my word declares, then God told the people, listen, as the result of that, then, then I'll honor you and I'll send rain on the land in season. And I'll keep your crops from being destroyed and I'll protect you from your enemies. And then God said on the other side of that, but if you turn away from me and you forsake me and you abandon me and you go and worship and serve other gods, then God said, I'll withhold the rings and you'll bring upon yourself these curses. And God kind of put it all out in the reverse. You'll become vulnerable to your enemies and you'll be overcome easily and defeated and, and you'll find the heavens will be like brass and you'll find yourself struggling with different pestilences and diseases and problems that happen as a result of living outside of my will and my design. And so here, notice, in verse 13, God doesn't say if, he says when. He doesn't say if, I have to shut up the heavens. He doesn't say, if it's necessary to command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence, he says, when. In other words, God knew that they were going to fail. God knew they were going to make mistakes. God already knew they were going to turn away from him, and yet he was kind and gracious, knowing they were even going to turn their backs on him. But God in his love says, look, when this happens, and remember, these were consequences God would bring upon the people of Israel, upon the nation, as God's chosen people and his children, he would bring these consequences upon them really as a loving father to give them incentive to wake up to their wrongdoing and to make a course correction. So God would allow them to struggle. He would withhold the rain. He would send 
pestilence among them and cause their crops to be devoured. And, and God would let these things transpire so they would struggle in such a way that they would realize this isn't working, rebelling against God. Being proud and disobedient and doing our own thing is not making our life good. It's hard. You know, the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard, and it is. Don't let anybody trick you. You see people and you envy people. Man, he just turned from the Lord and she's living like that. And, and wow, it seems like, the, oh, no, no, trust me. Trust me. They are miserable. And it is hard. The way of the transgressor is hard. And the cumulative effect of that, if not right away, eventually catches up and God begins to allow his discipline and consequences. So again, God would let them struggle to encourage change and cause course correction. Thus, suffering was directly connected to their pride and their rebellion. But notice God gives this promise as an encouragement that if they, in the midst of their failure, turn back to him, that God would be kind to them, that he would forgive them and be gracious to them. And he promises Israel, if they would humble themselves in the midst of their error, that he would forgive and heal them. He says, but if my people, in the midst of their rebellion and pride, if my people called by my name, he says, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So God says, if they come to a place where they realize, look, we have been arrogant and proud, particularly against God and his authority. And that's the worst form of pride when you're arrogant and proud against God's authority over your life. But God says if they humble themselves and they have a change of attitude and, and they're willing to turn and take ownership of their error and stop making excuses, he says, and they're willing to pray and communicate to me again and to seek my face, not seek my hand. God, what's in your hand for me? I want to live like a rebel, but what's in your hand for me? God says, no, if, if they won't seek my, but they seek my face. That is, they want to know me. They want to know what matters to me. They want to look into my eyes again and have genuine, honest fellowship with me and turn back to having a proper relationship with me. And he says, and turn from their wicked ways. That is repentance. Not just being remorseful. That's not repentance. That may be a part of the first step in repentance, but repentance is a change of mind and a change of heart that leads to a complete change of direction where you turn away from the practical sinful activity or what you're doing wrong. You turn away from it, you abandon it, and you turn back to living for God instead. And he says, if my people will do this, he says, then God says, I'll hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, have mercy upon them, and I will heal their land. I'll restore the reins. I'll drive away the, the pestilences and the diseases and I'll bring restoration back to the land. Now, God promises this specifically to the nation of Israel. And notice it's directly connected to healing their land because God gave a covenant promise to Israel of a land, a promised land. Only Israel, God's given a promised land to. God's given to us a promised life as, new, as believers, but God's given to them a promised land. And for Israel, the condition of the land and their condition circumstantial were usually directly connected according to the covenant with how they were doing in their relationship with God. So I say that because, of course, this verse makes itself into prayer meetings and all kinds of things. But we always have to remember that in a specific and a direct context, this promise is given particularly to the nation of Israel in its most specific context regarding their land and the things they would experience. And it was given to the nation of Israel regarding their land. 
And I say that because one of the things we very quickly tend to do is we like to try and take Second Chronicles 7.14, great verse as it is, and try and use it for the United States of America. Look, this promise was for Israel because they were God's chosen people set apart by grace, given a covenant by God to be his witnesses and his chosen nation. As much as I love being an American and I love the foundations and what this country represented from its start, America is not the same thing as Israel. So it is wrong for us to try, well, Lord, if we just do this, and then you're going to just heal our land. Well, look, there's lots of people in our land that aren't doing this. I think probably, if anything, the principles certainly have application, but probably the best way, if anything, this can be taken as far as application, the principles existing for any humble person who humbles themselves and repents and turns towards God in prayer, probably the best way of application this can be taken in an equivalent way is God's rebuke to his people, which today would be the church, would be you and I. Notice what he says there in verse 14 again. If my people who are called by my name, from a New Testament perspective, that would be you and I as Christians. We're now God's people called by his name, by the name of Jesus, Christians who we represent. And again, these statements aren't given to just a society or to a nation generally other than the nation of Israel. God's saying my people. And in the same way Israel had no right to point fingers at anyone else, it's very sad and tragic. A lot of times in the church, we go, well, I can't believe what people in the world are doing and doing this and they're doing that. And God says, no, if my people, my people who are called by my name, the Bible says in 1 Peter, the judgment begins in the house of God. We know better. And God's not looking and saying, I can't believe what the world is doing. I can't believe what they're endorsing now. I can't believe what they're justifying now. I can't. God says, I can't believe what the church is doing. I can't believe what Christians are now allowing in their lives. And God says, if my people who know me, again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says this, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, listen, a holy nation. Isn't that interesting? That's the equivalent given to us from a New Testament, that we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and not that we replace Israel. I don't believe in replacement theology, but from a spiritual sense, God says, you're now my, my people who represent the name of my son, Jesus Christ, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. That's who we are now. So if anything, it should be you and I as Christians and the church who take verse 14 to heart and say, Lord, as your people called by your name, Lord, we need to humble ourselves. We need to deal with the pride in our hearts among the church. Our self-sufficiency and our lack of prayer and our unwillingness to be submitted to God and to walk in humility before the Lord. The Bible says in, in Micah chapter 6, you know, what does the Lord require of thee? And he says, he has shown thee, O man, what the Lord requires of thee, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So God says, in the church, if my people would humble themselves, if there would be a humility that would come among the body of Christ where people are humbling themselves, where they're again praying and seeking God's face. You know, we complain, I, I can't believe they took prayer out of school and they want to take prayer out of the government. And they listen, God's saying, I can't believe they don't pray in church. And, and as Christians, we want to fall and complain everything else. And sometimes I think God says, look, people don't want to pray in church. 
You're complaining that people won't let you pray in school. God says, people don't want to pray in church. So God says, when my people begin to pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that is God's people, living in sin, doing things that we know are displeasing to God. When my people turn in repentance, then God says, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. How wonderful that there's forgiveness available because of Jesus. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God might not necessarily heal our land, but God will heal our lives and restore and bring healing where sin has damaged our lives. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, by his stripes, Jesus' stripes, we're healed. There's healing in Jesus' name. Healing of our lives where sin brings damage and pain and wound into our lives. So great exhortation and great promise of hope for humility in the midst of our sinfulness or erring against God. Verse 15 says, Now my eyes will be open and ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, God says, for my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So again, God reminding Solomon how because of his presence there and the sacrifices and the shedding of blood there that it would cause God's heart and his eyes to be inclined towards the temple. His eyes inclined and his heart inclined towards that place there in Jerusalem and where the temple was. And you know, the Bible says the Lord God changes not. So I read that and it reminds me, you know, God's, God's eyes still on Israel and particularly God's eyes on Jerusalem. And his heart's inclined towards that place and what happens there. That hasn't changed. Verse 17, now God speaks specifically to Solomon as he wraps up the remainder of our chapter here and he kind of brings this to bear personally on Solomon's heart. He says, and as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, and David wasn't perfect, but David loved the Lord. He had a heart that was given over to God, a man after God's own heart. If you walk before me as David your father did and do according to all that I've commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man as a ruler in Israel. So notice the promise, the covenant promise God gave to David, which then came to Solomon next as a successor, it was conditional. That if they would obey, if they would follow God and be obedient to his word, God would continue to establish his promise to them and they would continue to have a successor sitting upon the throne there in Israel. And this was God's faithful covenant and promise to them. The idea here is Solomon, if he says you do according to all I've commanded you, keep my statutes and my judgments. He's saying, Solomon, if you're obedient to me and you obey my word and my will, then I'll establish you. There'll be stability to your life. There'll be blessing to your life. That's the principle there. Obedient living towards God and his word will always bring stability. It'll always bring blessing. A lot of things you can't control in your life, folks, right? We can't control what happens with the economy or our health or this or that or circumstances. But there's one thing you can control. Obey God. Follow the word of God. No matter what happens, how you feel, how people treat you, you obey God and obey God's word and God will establish you and he'll bring stability and blessing to you for doing that. Now, on the other side of that, verse 19, the chapter concludes, but Solomon, if you turn away and forsake my statutes and commandments, which I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them. 
Then God says, I will uproot them from the land which I've given to them. And we saw that happen many times. We'll see as they go through the history of Israel. And this house, which I've sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight and make it a proverb and a byword that is a mockery and a shame among all peoples, the peoples of other nations who would look upon this glorious temple ultimately in ruins and destroyed when they be taken captive. And as for this house, which is exalted or so impressive, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and this house? And then the answer, so people understood, it wasn't that God wasn't good. It was the people brought this upon themselves through their failure. Verse 22, they will answer because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity upon them. So notice the contrast. If you obey me and you obey my will and follow my word, then God says, there'll be blessing in your life. There'll be stability. You'll be rooted and established. And there'll be blessing to your experience. But God says, but if you turn away and you pursue other gods, and if you turn away from God, look, the only option if you turn away from God is you're going to worship and serve other things because everybody serves something, right? The key to life is finding the right master. Everybody on the planet serves something. Some people serve themselves. Well, let's be honest. A lot of people serve themselves. That's still our problem half the time, right? Or we live to serve other people, or we serve some passion or some pursuit. Or I mean, we, we all serve something. It's the master passion that rules us. And God, and God says, if you turn away from me and you serve other gods and idols and other things and live devoted to that, then God says, you're going to bring calamity upon yourself. You leave me no other recourse, God says. And he says, it will cause great shame upon you and the nation. And people will look and say, wow, what happened to that person's life? Why did their life fall apart? At one point, they seemed like they were doing well. I thought they were following Jesus. I thought they were God's child. Why now has their life just become a, a ruin and a calamity? And people will look and say, the only thing I can connect the dots, this is they forsook the Lord. They forsook the Lord. They didn't follow the Lord. And when they stopped following the Lord, calamity came upon their life and problems. Look, folks, you and I know as well that God loves us and he desires what's best for us and he wants to spare us heartache. He wants to spare us shame and embarrassment and all those things and he's willing to forgive as we read earlier and to heal and to renew and to restore and all we have to do is humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn away from things that we know we shouldn't get involved in or maybe we've gotten involved in. And God says, if you do that, I have a just basis because of what Jesus did in my love for you to forgive and to cleanse and to heal and to restore your life. What a wonderful opportunity God set before us. Why don't we stand together? Let's pray.